Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall. And in this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast, I sat down with Dr. Christopher Gilbert to talk about how we, as leaders, can make more ethical choices. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Gilbert. Dr. Christopher Gilbert is the author of the best-selling The Noble Edge, Reclaiming an Ethical World One Choice at a Time, that just received the 2022 Author Circle Nonfiction Book of the Year Award. He is a senior international ethics consultant and keynote speaker at Noble Edge Consulting. And having spent much of his career focused on the study of human morality, Dr. Gilbert has over 30 years of experience in personal and organizational ethics development. His clientele includes the Gates Foundation, multiple Fortune 500 companies and nonprofit organizations in the US, Canada, Asia, and Africa. He has also been a professor and visiting faculty of business ethics and social responsibility at five universities on four continents. I hope you enjoy our conversation as we talk about how you can make the world more ethical, one choice at a time. Dr. Christopher Gilbert, welcome to The Leadership Habit. We are so happy to have you here. We're going to be talking about a topic that I love, and I'm not even sure why I love it, but I think it's probably because I wish there was more of it. We're talking about ethics today. But as we get into it, I would love to just start off with this because you've written a book, The Noble Edge, and I think that your book is so important and needed right now. The subtitle being Reclaiming an Ethical World One Choice at a Time. So I want to know a little bit more. What inspired you to write this book or what brought you to this book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think part of it was that I was already teaching uh, in graduate programs in several universities across the world, um, business ethics and social responsibility. And uh, that had really come out of an experience that I had when I started a <clears throat> small business back in the mid 80s um, that was very successful, operated for about five years. And this, by the way, is the first story in the book. And then there was a very large food service company that we all know in the United States uh, that showed up to see if they wanted to give us some more money to expand across the country. They spent about a month with us. Uh, they got done. They sent a letter six weeks later and said, nah, we're not interested in this food delivery stuff. We're going to stick with what we know. And then we discovered two months later that they had opened up an identical operation out in the Midwest and used our menu and our vehicles and our systems. And uh, we knew that we couldn't sue this multi-billion dollar corporation so we're really stuck. Our venture capital group said, look, if they're doing it, we're not going to get first in market share wherever we go. So let's close the place down. And I had to lay off 35 very loyal employees that had been working with us for almost five years. And I think that was one of the hardest things I had to do in my life. And at the time, I didn't think about it as business ethics. I don't know why, but I just thought, oh, this is a terrible thing to do. What an awful thing to do. And don't we expect this from the large companies? Um, but it was a little bit later that I realized, I think, and this is what gave me this flavor of ethics and all the teaching I was doing at that time, uh, after we'd lost the company, I went back into teaching. And I realized, you know, I need to know more about this idea of ethics um, and understand why people have the capacity to make such choices and how we get around that capacity to make such choices so that we're making better choices, more consistent right choices. Um, and I probably need some legitimacy. And that's when I got my PhD in uh, ethics and have really worked in it for the last 25 years. And that's what led to the book. My gosh, that story, though, like from the human perspective, I can only imagine just the anger and the frustration of kind of feeling deceived, but also the I feel like I would probably have this trust, right? Oh, you just decided not to do this. And then the frustration that comes with, no, you weren't being, there's so many emotions in that. Like, how did you feel during that? And then knowing that you were going to have to touch and impact the life of 35 loyal employees, like how the heck did you navigate that? Because that is emotionally a, a tough leadership place to be in. It was very difficult because um, there wasn't a good reason uh, other than the fact that we weren't going to have money to pay and keep the operation open. There wasn't a good reason for closing the operation down <clears throat> and laying them off. And so I think the idea of uh, sitting down with each one of them, which is one of the things that we did as we were closing the operation down, uh, sitting down with each one of them and talking about not only why it had happened the way that it happened, and, and how this other company had operated the way that they weren't supposed to. There was also in me an idea that I wanted to set them off on good footing 
um, so to talk about their future. Um, and so we did follow-ups after we laid them off and closed the operation down because we'd gotten very close with them. We did follow-ups to see if we could assist them to uh, get into an education program or to get another job or just to be a great reference or uh, to talk over with them moving to other parts of the country, which some of them wound up doing. Um, so I think from my perspective, it, one of the reasons that it was easier for me to go through this experience and not just come out uh, outraged and and uh, figure out I've got some retribution or revenge to do. That, that's that what I, I want to ask about because yes. that seems like a very easy next step. I mean, yeah. I'm thinking you pour your blood, sweat, and tears. You give some IP or you're talking about this idea. And then all of a sudden, I feel like it creates that place of like, well, if you're not going to be ethical, like why, why do I have to be ethical? But, uh, is that yeah. fair? Like, I, is that the human brain? Because I think that's the tough part of like, I want to play this way too, then if you're going to hurt me. <laughs> I'm so glad that I went the opposite way. <clears throat> and that was to try and utilize this as an experience that could get me into a position of understanding more about it. And then maybe working with other people um, to ensure, especially corporate leaders, to ensure that they weren't making these kinds of, uh, uh, of mistakes. They weren't taking these kinds of uh, decisions uh, at least lightly, until they'd really understood what they needed to weigh in it. So I think for me, turning it into a positive was one of the ways that I got out of the uh, great uh, morose feeling that I had about what had happened. And trust me, for years, I felt uh, very affected by this. And I think I just stuck my head into teaching, which was another way to give. Um, and yeah. I had been doing that before we started the company. So I think for me, um, and maybe this is just by personality, maybe it's about prayer, maybe whatever it is, um, I was able to turn this into something that's turned out to be really important, not just to me, but I think to anybody that wants to have the same conversation. How do we make better choices than we do? And what powers do we have to reclaim an ethical world, especially in what seems to be a particularly caustic uh, moral era? How can we ensure that we've got a better future um, for uh, not only ourselves, but others, our children, perhaps, um, as we move forward. And I think turning my energies that way uh, really had a, a, a strong effect on me feeling all right about what had happened. I don't think it was good, but I think it sure kickstarted me uh, into a conversation that I think the world, especially now, really needs. Yeah. Well, and you took a situation that I think, again, it would have been not to say that I would have wanted the retribution, but I would have wanted the retribution, right? The frustration that comes with that and just feeling kind of had and the anger that can come. But yet you were, I just, it's really admirable the way that you were able to turn that into something that let's not fight. You know, it's not about fighting the people that are making decisions that might be a little questionable or choices that maybe aren't in, you know, I guess just not positive for the relationship. It's about thinking, how can we be more aware and more intentional with it? I just like that you were able to take that because, whoo, that would have taken some time for me. I would have been like, I do not want to shop that. I don't want to, I don't want to see that brand. I don't want to hear anything about it because, you know, it's a human, like I would feel hurt. Right. And we all process it differently. So your book. Okay. I love, I love that subtitle of reclaiming an ethical world, one choice at a time. Now let's talk about what is the problem with choices? because uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> this is clearly where we went they had that choice after you had shared the business venture or idea to go out and pursue it on their own like you know what are the choices that we're making i guess and how you see it that kind of lay the foundation for understanding ethics yeah you know when i ask people uh, uh what they think of uh, ethics and, and and what poor ethical choices that they think about not themselves but as they look at the rest of the world they'll often bring up real high profile examples of the things that we see in the corporate world in government hollywood sports of the really high profile folks that make really terrible choices and the media picks up on it and of course it's splashed yeah. all over the headlines but it really turns out and this is part of the research i did that the main effect on ethics doesn't happen so much from the large choices that happen because quite frankly there are very few of those if we look at all the choices being made in the world it comes from the small choices that we have a tendency to make every day and i know this may get some people offended but you know we rationalize that those choices are right just the same way that the people in high profile positions like a, a corporate ceo who's defrauding millions and having to lay off 25,000 employees the way that they rationalize that what they're doing is just fine. So I realized that was really a key to having this conversation with people or in terms of writing the book was to get us to start thinking about our own radar screens, 
right? So here's my ethics radar screen. How wide does it go out so that I can begin to blip things that I might not normally think of as ethical choices, right? So for instance, uh, 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 cutting people off on the freeway. We don't think of it as an ethical choice. We don't even go through a machination that says, oh gosh, I'm going to be unethical today and cut this person off. We rationalize. That I'm laughing right is, now because someone listening to this podcast might be doing that very thing. And exactly, gonna... I do it, right? <laughs> this guy's too slow in front of me. I mean, my, <laughs> my schedule is more important. Oh, I'll show this person what they did. They cut me off. We feel fine about the choice that we're making. Now, granted, that's a small example, but if you've got millions of those examples happening all the time on all of our freeways, what do you get? Road rage. Right. That's what occurs, right? Because people are justifying their poor choices. Um, and I said, as I said, the same way that the large profile folks in sports or in Hollywood justify their poor choices. So one of the things that happened when I was teaching um, my uh, graduate students in business ethics, and then I noticed this in the corporate consulting I was doing, is that uh, people often have what uh, uh, I think I've come to call as this uh, ethics out of body experience, which is um, if you uh, uh, give them examples of people that are making poor ethical choices, um, the thinking that really goes on is, oh, yeah, that was an awful thing that they did. And of course, I myself would never make a choice like that, um, all while they're cutting people off on the freeway, secondhand smoking, fudging on their taxes, lying to the officer who pulls them over when they're speeding. They don't think of that choice as their radar screen is smaller. They don't think of their choices on an ethical grid that way, right? So poor people are making, I should say, uh, uh, the, the bad people are making uh, poor ethical choices. It's not me. I make the greatest ethical choices. Right. In fact, if you'll get, let me go on a little longer. In some of yeah. my talks, I'll often ask people, okay, you knew this was going to be an ethics talk to, with, with you today or, or, or at you today. Um, how many of you came here because you're unethical? Well, <laughs> of course, no hands go up, right? And I go, yeah, that's right, because we live by the highest standards. And I said, but yeah. how many people are glad that the person on this side or this side or in front of them are here today? And of course, that's when the hands go up, right? Because we live by the highest ethical standards. It's really everybody else out there that probably has the problem, right? So that's the ethics out of body experience. So my ethics are fine. It's the bad people making bad choices that really give ethics a bad name. And so this book Chris, is- I have to stop you there because I- Oh, yeah, 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 please. It's making me laugh so hard because, I mean, I, I'm that person. I'm absolutely we all are. we all are we all live by the highest ethical standards right i'm like oh god i you know and it, so what, what begs the question like I, oh my there's so many ways to go with this like with like do you start oh my god do you start with how do you get the shared kind of values when we still do have that out-of-body ethical experience that we're operating? Like, how do you even begin to solve this? Because we all have it. I think maybe the first step is admitting we have it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Isn't that always the first step in any of these things, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you know, the book isn't accusatorial. It's like I'm standing up above holier than thou because I'm an ethics consultant with a PhD in it. I'm no more or less ethical than anybody else, as long as the other person is actually trying to be better tomorrow than they are today. This is all about a voyage. It's not about an arrival, right? So nobody crosses the ethics go line, spikes the morality ball and says, that's it. I'm through. I'm done. Right. <laughs> We're always going down using this football analogy, probably too far. We're always marching down the field, but we never actually achieve the goal, which would be to be perfect ethical all the time. Um, but that march, that advance, that's what's important. And this is really what the book is. You know, the book starts off with a basically a saying that I think is really important if you can keep it in your head. So here's something simple people could walk away from this interview with. If you believe that there's no right way to do the wrong thing. And I'll say that again. There's no right way to do the wrong thing. This book is for you. If you don't believe that, leave the book alone, right? But really, that's where it starts. And even that mantra, just saying that mantra when you wake up in the morning or for a few minutes each day, there's no right way to do the wrong thing. It starts to adjust your thinking about any of the large or small choices that you're making. So, so if you can keep that in mind out of this interview and that's all you get, that's wonderful. There's no I mean, right I've already got to... more out of this. And I do like that we're having a candid conversation because it's not coming from this place of judging people because it is understanding our own bias, our own out-of-body um, experience of how we do that. We're not, we don't want anyone to feel the sense of shame and, and shame and blame right now. 
We want you to, you know, there's no right way to do the wrong thing. So then what begs the question, where do you start? How do you know what is the right thing? Is it a, is it a feeling? Is it a, this is the social contract like of the highway and, you know, we should be kind and let people enter, you know, the highway whenever they need to and not cut them off. Like, how do you determine what the right thing is if that can feel or if people can justify in some way, you know, I know that's what you're getting at the counter that there's no right way to do the wrong thing. But how do you determine the right thing? Because I know the big ones, right? The big ones, such as like scamming people out of millions of dollars, like obviously not great, not treating people. But then you also see, I I guess the example that's coming to mind live right now is even Keurig and K-Cups. And I don't think initially when they created K-Cups, they wanted to have the environmental impact that they did. I don't think they weren't being socially responsible. I think they were looking at a market and trying to make coffee consumption easier. I don't think they anticipated that. So how do you determine what's right when it's not so black and white? Uh, I'll, I'll talk about one of the most powerful do- tools in the book. I think it's probably a little early to do this, but you, your question's perfect. So uh, one of the difficulties that we have with ethics is in fact, the way that it's taught or the way that it's trained. One of the things I discovered in the research I was doing for my doctorate was that the people who, and this is both students and corporate executives, leaders, um, the people who have had formal training in ethics actually make lower level moral decisions than the people who have not had formal training in ethics. So say that again, the people who've had formal formal training are actually making lower level moral choices than the people- How does that that happen? Well, you can blame us, meaning the teachers and the consultants, the way that we're teaching it. Because quite often someone walks out of a classroom or walks out of a training and they have all of these different perspectives on what ethics might be it all seems a little gray and they can kind of choose one of those perspectives and feel right about the choice that we're making. Rather than having a perspective that you constantly use to determine what's ethical or not ethical, you get this whole uh, cereal bowl full of different choices that you can make that in fact, even though they may be mutually exclusive to one another, um, uh, turn out to be a way to justify whatever you're, you're doing, whatever you choice you've made as being an ethical choice. I'll give you a quick example so this doesn't seem philosophical. You know, there's one uh, route along ethics that talks about, uh, it's called consequentialism, right? But really the word in there is the consequences. You determine whether you've been ethical or not by examining the consequences of your actions. So forget what methods you use, the means that you use to get there. What you're doing is saying, look, was there a good thing in the end or was there a bad thing in the end? And of course, if you take that to an extreme, you could actually then have studies where you're uh, uh, putting patients at uh, a risk of their life to find a drug that might be good for all the other millions that will come afterwards. And so we've seen this in the past, drug studies that have actually killed patients in the uh, effort to try and come out with a drug that in the end actually does work for more people. Well, that's great for the more people later on at the end, but the means that you've used Killing those patients to determine what drug works and what drug doesn't work is a famous study called the Tuskegee study where 300 black men were exposed to VD and they let it run its course so that they could determine what drugs would be effective for VD later on. But I mean, what an awful thing to think about in terms of an ethical, an ethical cost or an ethical equation. Well, if you're using this idea of the consequences as a way to justify what you're doing, you get to see a lot of the choices that people are making now, even the high profile folks in sports or businesses. It's all right to defraud millions of people as long as we're keeping our employers, I mean, our employees in business, we're keeping our business in business and we're helping our stockholders maintain their millions or billions of dollars. We can justify the means that we're using for the ends that we achieve. Well, that's one way to take a look at ethics. But of course, if you look at the means, the people that are used in between, Um, the beginning and the end, you've really got a wholly different equation. And so what I wanted to do was come up with a way of looking at ethics um, that was much more uh, 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 solid, where I could stand on ground and know what's ethical and what's not ethical. Just like your question, how do I know what's right? The powerful tool in the book is you can really look at every choice, every ethical choice that you make on one of three steps of a ladder. The first step is you think about the consequences of the choice as it's about me. As long as I come out ahead or I miss getting persecuted in some way, I can defend myself, then the choice has been ethical because I wind up being in a better place. 
The next step is it's about some of us, usually the people that we care about or we're connected to or we want to be a part of, whether that's a small community or a church or a Boy Scout group or even a nation. You can think about it in terms of a global context. Well, a nation is only one small part, one small group of that whole global village. So that second step is it's about some of us. I'll, I'll make a choice that not only serves me well, but it also serves the people that I want to be a part of or I am a part of well. And then there's the third choice, but the highest level, uh, highest step on that moral ladder. It's about all of us. Every choice that I make that has an impact on others now or in the future is an ethical choice. And if I'm beginning to take that group of stakeholders, the people who will be affected, into my choice group as I'm making that choice, it starts to give me a, a better path to making an ethical choice. So you move from it's about me to it's about some of us to it's about all of us when you're making those choices. And it begins to actually kind of regulate your thinking in the way that you make those choices. Well, and it feels like it's attached to <clears throat> rooted in emotional intelligence, right? The ability to see beyond yourself, to think about the social environment and the relationships that are impacted. I, I love the, and I'm maybe making that because I just taught emotional intelligence for Crestcom last week. And so like, that's the easy bridge that I'm seeing right now. Um, but let's level set because I know I jumped ahead without even maybe defining the purpose of what ethics are. You know, it's not just something that's, because I think oftentimes we, I, or maybe this is how I see it, is like not as an everyday expectation to be ethical so much as it's an expectation for the leaders in an organization to be ethical. And I don't often hear people talk about it as like, you know, just the individual. It's the responsibility of the organization to make choices that are ethical. I don't, if, I'm not sure if that's landing, but that's kind of how I see it, where it's really the expectation of it or the blame, maybe like the outcome of whatever those choices are, the consequentialism, like that's as a result of them. Like, I don't have to think about me. Um, so what are, let's talk about the foundation of maybe what ethics are and why it's easy to diffuse the responsibility of it. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe this is a good part to sort of talk about the difference between morality and, and ethics and legality. So, because uh, oftentimes leaders in an organization run to the legal to say that this is ethical. But I'll start with moral, morality or morals. Morals are really the things that we've agreed to are the right choices to be making and the basis for those right choices. Um, ethics are the actions that we take after we've examined the morality of the situation that we're doing. So maybe one easy way to think about this is that mor morals are in the talking, ethics are in the walking. Right. So we use these. Oh, I like words that. Morals are in the talking, ethics are in the walking. I like that. You've got a yeah, lot of exactly. good one liners. <laughs> we, we, we use these words interchangeably, semantically yeah. speaking, but that's really where they come from. That's the root of them. Legality, which is the place I said leaders will often wind up, what's legal really is, a, is, is an enforced set of social arrangements that we know sometimes change over time given our level of morality, right? We can look at laws in this country just 40 or 50 years ago that segregated restaurants, that segregated drinking fountains. And, and these things were legal in the states that they were passed. In fact, we're still trying to rid ourselves of this weight on our shoulders that came from that kind of era where we even legalized um, the differentiation or the inequity of people around us. So we know that that laws change over time depending on where our morality is. If anybody's thinking about this in another way, you can think about it in terms of cigarette smoking, right? It, it wasn't a, a laws that changed the way that we think about cigarettes. It's, uh, it was really us and what we understood now about what cigarettes could do to us that created the laws that are there now to enforce the change that's been made in the way that we think about um, smoking cigarettes. And so uh, I think the thing that uh, we really concentrate on as we're making different choices is that we have this, and this is one of the other messages of the book, we have this ability, this capacity, even the desire to morally progress, to move to be more tomorrow morally, ethically, if we're making the right actions, than we are today. And maybe one way, again, to get this out of the philosophical is to say, you know, in places I'll often ask during my talks, um, you know, we, we, I would say we've got an innate desire to carry forward an ever advancing civilization. That sounds very philosophical. We have an innate desire to carry forward an ever advancing civilization. How can you cut through the philosophy of it? Well, it's like asking, a, asking the question of someone, do you want the world to be worse than, equal to, or better than it is now for your children? 
Well, 98% of the people I asked that question to, do you want the world to be worse than, equal to now, or better than it is now for your children? 98% of people say, I want it to be better for your children. And there it is. That's that innate desire to make sure that things are better in the future than they were in the past or that they are today. And part of that is that idea of moral progression. And you were talking about emotional intelligence, making a moral choice really is on four legs of the stool, the physical, the spiritual, the intellectual, and the emotional, just like you said. Um, and in, in the case of emotions, I think it's very important to understand that ethics is also about empathy, understanding someone else's position, not just your position, in order to make a choice that has a positive impact on them as well, even if perhaps it has a negative impact on you. And that's, I mean, that is probably the biggest piece of like getting it's not about you. It is not about you. If you're really making that decision from the third step of the ladder, it's about all of us and that we all have some level or we will have, you know, we will have to make sacrifices. We will, you know, have to do something that, oh, you know, I don't know if that's postponing your like instant gratification so much as it's just really thinking about, it's not all just about you. So how do you apply this in a day-to-day framework? And I do appreciate the the ladder and also making that differentiation between morals and ethics and, and legal, it almost makes me want to go like what one came first, like, and what one's right? Because that, I feel like that has to be, and and that's gotta be the age old time of like every country in their politics, right? Like what one came first, we made this, now it's that, like, how do you blend to even know which ones were results of a law that are shifting into your morals, but really maybe that law was wrong. And like, it's, there's just so many directions to go with this. So how do you build that awareness around the day-to-day choices? Yeah, another really good question. Um, I think the, the way to think about this, especially if you start off with the idea of law, you know, speaking about legality, you're really talking about the low bar when it comes to ethics. I mean, that's the place to start the conversation is what's going on legal or not. I said, but you know, legal, legal changes as our own uh, social uh, maturity happens. And we begin to see that laws in the past don't work like they should now because we have a better understanding of others that are around us. So if you can uh, put into perspective this idea that ethics are not meant to be gray, um, you know, using the phrase ethics are gray is like using the phrase I'm sort of pregnant um, or I sort of voted or I'm sort of human. Um, we have this idea somehow that ethics, uh, the purview of ethics is for really smart people or folks that have PhDs or religious leaders that have spent a long time in it. And I think that's unfortunate because we've actually given up our power to think that it's so gray, we can't come up with an answer. We've got to go to some kind of an expert. Um, and I might be shooting myself in the foot here for my consulting <laughs> business. But, you know, the best thing that could happen is I don't get any more business because people are making the right choices. Um, but Uh, we really have the ability to begin to think about ethics in a way that might be more productive for us than uh, what's legal or not, what's a sin or not, what's, uh, uh, you know, uh, what are the the, uh, policies and procedures here and am I violating some set of guidelines? I think a better way to think about ethics, and again, this is a a shift in the thinking about what ethics are supposed to do for us, Um, not to be uh, punished for things, but to think of them and not as a penalty, but rather as a privilege. Um, so I'll use the analogy, you know, if you think about crossing a high bridge over uh, over a river or over this, uh, the ocean or the sound like we've got here in the northwest where I am in Seattle, um, you know, how fast would I go across that bridge, especially on a windy or icy day if there were no guardrails along the side? I don't know about you, but I would probably, especially if it were windy, stop my car on one side, get out, crawl across the bridge, get into my car on the other side, do my errands, come back and do the same thing, crawling back to my original car when I got home. I don't want to take the chance of going off a guardrail-less bridge on the sides, especially the one we've got here, which is 200 feet above the water. And if I went, I'd probably go very, very slow and imagine all the traffic jam that had happened. It's a privilege to have those guardrails there. And that, in fact, I think is a great way to begin to think about ethics and maybe a different way that's more that, that helps us uh, think that we've got the opportunity or the power to make choices. Ethics are really the guardrails that we've got that allow us to go just as fast and just as far as we need to go, especially when there are others around us that are trying to go the same way or a slightly different way. Those guardrails are a privilege and really allow us to do the speeds that we need to be able to do 
to get where we want to go. Maybe not quite as fast as I'd want to go if I were alone and there were guardrails there and I could zoom across at 100, 200 miles an hour, but there isn't just me. There are others that are out there as well, also having to go around. And if you want to think about this too, um, ethics is an exercise of our virtues, not an exercise of our rights. And so if you think about what makes a four-way stop work, well, there are laws that tell us we've got to stop. But I tell you what, I don't pull up to a four-way stop and go, oh, gosh, uh, revised code of Washington number 97-605. The stop, the stop. And I will stop. You try four-way stop. One, what you're seeing sorry, it just came one second. I, if you think oh, about it this oh, way. There oh, we go. <laughs> ah, there we go. Um, if you think about it this way, a four-way stop works because of trust. I trust you'll stop there. You'll trust I stop there. There may be codes uh, in the laws that talk about having to stop, but I don't think of those when I stop. I think about the fact that I'm supposed to stop because you trust I will, and you're supposed to stop because I trust you will. So what you really see happening at a four-way stop sign are a set of virtues that we have that help us make the world work. Even if we're working at 90 degrees to each other and you want to go one way and I'm going another way in completely the opposite direction or 90 degrees to you, that four-way stop works because of virtues. And if you go to a world where there are half of us that don't believe in four-way stops, so I'm just going to go plowing through this because I want to do what I want to do. Well, this I'm is consensus. Be, I love I'm this. Still, like, yeah, yeah, what do you do? We don't have consensus around this. Yeah, I'm still <laughs> going to be affected as a, as a non-believer in the stop sign because I'm sure there are going to be those people who don't believe in the stop sign that are still worried about, especially if you got others in the car, still worried about who's coming in opposite directions and whether they believe in the four-way stop or not, they're probably going to have to stop. And actually, it's going to take me longer to go through that stop sign because I don't know whether I can trust you or not to stop. I got to wait until you go by. And if you go zooming through it, then I can go unless there are others behind you. But I got to wait all the way. Whereas before, if we both had this trust with each other and I knew that you were going to stop, I can go through it just as soon as I can. And so it's actually affected my life to uh, to the better, to believe in the system of trust with each other than it is to have a number of us on the road that are still going to go blasting through it. Because even those people, they're taking a risk. And, you know, I mean, there are only two ways to do this. You either got to stop and wait for all the traffic to be gone and go through it, or you're going to punch the accelerator down, close your eyes and hope that there's not somebody who is like you, not trusting and, you know, not worrying about the trust in others that's still going to come plowing through. And maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. So even if we say to ourselves, no, I'm not going to believe all of this because I want to do what I want to do, it winds up affecting your life negatively and hurting your chances to do something that you're not part of an agreement with each other that we've got to be able to do this because we're not always going in the same path to the same place. We sometimes are 90 degrees to each other. and We've got to come up with a system that works for you and works for me and helps both of us equally. So that idea of the virtue, that's really what ethics is about. It's about exercising your virtues. Okay, so then here's my question. I'm, I feel like I could ask you so many questions. My brain is Please just do. <laughs> uh, here's my question because I understand, you know, the theory of the the three step moral ladder. Um, you know, the first step is about us. The second step is about some of us, and then the third is about all of us. What if you found yourself with the decision that you alt- like? How do you assess the decision if you know that? I mean, I guess maybe even going back to the ladder, is it? Are we are we striving for level three all the time? Are we understanding that life is going to shift you where it's okay to go to ladder one? Because if you're sick or something, you need to probably, like, I'm not even sure if there's interchangeability between them or if there is a, <clears throat> like, what do you do in the situations where you might inherently know that you should be thinking about the benefit of all, but you ultimately do know that some people are going to suffer, I guess. Maybe at the front of that, that medical study or the Tuskegee study of thinking like, we know people are going to die. Like, how do you proceed then to go forward? Like, how do you rationalize the, that when you know that you can't make the decision from the all of us perspective? Am I going too high here? I just so No, no. I mean, they're good questions. And of course, you, you can't dig into the subject unless you're really kind of looking at those bits and pieces, because it's putting all those bits and pieces together that really begin to teach you about maybe making better choices. You know, part of what's happening when you walk up that step ladder is that you are personalizing the choices that you're making. So maybe one way to look at this that might clear up the philosophy sides of it is to think about, well, if I made every choice and personalized it like, well, if this is my mother, what would I do? If this is my brother or sister, what would I do? If this is my best friend, what would I do? 
We've now gotten out of the fact that strangers, people that we don't know, people that we'll never meet, somehow we can affect them more negatively than we would affect the people that are closest around us that we want to actually treat perhaps better because we feel a different sense of responsibility. As you climb up that ladder, what's happening is you're really beginning to personalize more and more for the people that perhaps aren't close to you. What might impact them that in a, in a way, of course, you're standing in their shoes and going, well, if I'm on the other side of this in the, let's say the Tuskegee study, if I'm on the other side of this and I'm going to die at a minimum, I would want to be consulted with and give permission to that idea. All right. I'm yeah. the <laughs> ultimate sacrifice for the millions or billions of people that would be saved if I'm doing it. But at least as a stakeholder in that entire operation, I've been asked, and I can, if I, if, if I so desire, give up my life in the study for the things that are, you know, the things that might come out of the benefit of it. Uh, the difficulty is when we look at others and somehow they're apart from us, um, we can say, well, I'm different than them. They're different than me. I don't know them. I don't have a responsibility. I'm not connected. We begin to make choices that aren't personalized. We begin to make choices that if it happened to us, we'd probably go, well, God, this is me. I, this is terrible. I don't want this to happen to me. But if it's another person, we don't really think of it that way. And of course, to its extreme, that's what you see happening in these, uh, let's say, these shootings that are going on in schools, right? The mass shootings that are happening anywhere is somehow the people that are, are, are doing the act feel somehow separate or apart from the people that are being hurt in the act, right? Because if they were in that room, they were a school child, they could empathize with the fear um, or the anger of the parents later or the, or the tragedy of it all. Um, they wouldn't make the choices that they do. So climbing up that ladder is really about, as you said, the emotional intelligence part of it. It's really about beginning to um, understand and empathize with others that are around you. Do we do that all the time? No. Is it impossible to do all the time? I think right now it is, especially in this particularly caustic moral area era where we've kind of got to look at ourselves and take care of ourselves. Um, and, and we don't think of others perhaps around us like we should. But Progress here on the earth is about being more tomorrow than you are today. And we've got a capacity. We're born with the capacity to advance in certain ways. Think about language. How in the world does a kid learn language? I can't learn a language uh, as like I did when I was a child. It just gets absorbed. And we learn a French, Spanish, Japanese, Russian, um, Sioux. I, I mean, we, we, we have this capacity as a child to get this stuff into our heads and, and actually begin to use it. Thank good we do. Thank goodness we do. And it doesn't change. We've got that same capacity to be more tomorrow than we are today, every moment of our lives. And I think the different ethics or a different way to think about right choices comes from working on and achieving that capacity. You can't win a marathon or even run a marathon unless you practice for the marathon. It doesn't happen overnight, right? So there's some work that goes into it. Thank, fortunately, I think ethics isn't as difficult as a marathon, but I don't run marathons. So. <laughs> I don't either. Don't worry. We're yeah. At any rate, we've got that capacity inside of us. And if you believe in that capacity, then you can begin to think about what it means to step up those three steps of the ladder. And by the way, I'm not at step three all the time. I walk up and down that ladder all the time. What I think I do have is a tool that at least if I make a bad choice, I can ask myself, well, why didn't you step up and make a choice that was about everybody in this decision? Why did you just do it for you? Or why did you just do it for your kids uh, when others were hurt outside of that? And it gives me a way to begin to think uh, ethics aren't gray. This isn't iffy. This isn't tough. This is, wait a minute, where was I when I made that choice? And why wasn't I another step up the ladder when I made it? That's, oh my gosh. And there's so many different, like even I'm thinking of examples that I've shared on, you know, the podcast before, even about allyship, right? Um, and how that relates done to like advocacy for others. And I'm going to give a really stupid example, but, and they've heard this. I wore jeans to an event that I did speaking. I knew I was kind of towing the line, but I was talking about human connection. But in any event, I knew I was towing the line in terms of maybe how people expected um, just the presence of a speaker in a, in that setting. And someone had come up to me afterwards and they said, this meeting professional loved you. She loved like your message. It was so great, but she couldn't hire you because oh. you wore jeans. Oh. And in my head, and even now as I sit here and I look and I'm like, I have a full corporate wardrobe. I spent so much time there. I was actually being very intentional with my wardrobe choice for that event to support the message. And the initial piece that I was frustrated about was 
you know, I'll take the responsibility. I knew I was towing the line. It hurt. It stinks to be like, oh my gosh, I, I poured my blood, sweat, tears into this message and to find out that like, and did you listen to the message? Um, but in any event, the other question that did end up coming up for me is like, what could you have maybe presented a different thing about me? Like I've said like, Hey, I bet you, I bet you asked Jen, she could probably do whatever you need to do to make your audience happy. And that's just a small example of allyship. I am not trying to pretend that like, you know, this is not a gross, like inequity that I was dealt or anything like that. But like, it does bring in like, where are people in allyship? Like, cause we hear circumstances all the time of maybe someone being treated poorly, someone not being represented in the best way. Like, what's our ethical responsibility to help expand the ethics of others? Like, and how do you see allyship? Because then I want to talk about cancel culture. Like there's so many questions that I have as it relates to that of like painting that bigger picture. Yeah. Am I going too far, Chris? (laughs) No, no, no. Again, a really good question. Um, And and I think this has to do with an understanding that we, we do not have the responsibility to teach others unless they ask us. Unless they want to be taught by us, although all of us, I think, go around. And I'm not talking about parents with children. You have an innate responsibility to teach yeah. those children because they can't teach themselves, right? Um, but at a certain point, we have to sort of doff this idea that it's my responsibility to teach you a better ethic in some way, at least directly. Certainly through my actions and my responses, I can teach you another way to look at the world that might, might in fact, give you a great variety of better choices. Um, or better outcomes than the current ones that you've got. Um, I'll, I'll go to an example that I use in my book because I think this is part of the answer too. Um, the difference between transparency and truthfulness. Um, and uh, the example that I use in the book, speaking of wardrobe, um, is you know we often go with someone that we're shopping with, maybe men, not as much as women, but maybe a partner. Um, and they step into a changing room and they put something on and they walk out and you look at it and go, oh my God. That's just hideous. I, I mean, <laughs> what am I going to say? And of course, then comes that ultimate question, right? Which is, well, how do I look? And you're stuck there going, well, uh, I guess I'll come up with some coded language here. Like, uh, oh, that's the reddest red you've ever worn, dear. Or, uh, boy, you've never had anything yellow before. How interesting <laughs> to see that on you. When in your head, you're going, oh, God, this is, you know, for, don't, don't buy that thing. Don't wear that thing. Um, but you don't want to give them the transparency of it because there are, emotions connected to it as well, right? Yeah. But if you think about it, there's a whole interchange that probably ought to happen before you're in that circumstance. And I'm not saying that we need to analyze this far for something as simple as someone stepping into a a changing room and coming out with a different wardrobe. Um, But you might want to actually discuss, um, because it'd be interesting to see the answers, what it is the person is looking for when they ask the question. Are they looking for the truth? Are they looking for transparency? Are they looking for some approval that if they get it from you, they're going to buy this and they're going to have it? And by the way, what do any of us know about fashion, right? I mean, I get what I get because I think I look good and it's comfortable on me. Um, But uh, the idea here is the difference between uh, truthfulness and transparency. Um, I think there were far more uh, 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 positive outcomes that came from the reality that it probably didn't have anything to do with what you were wearing. That was just an excuse that was used to come up with a quick answer that takes the responsibility off my shoulders to sort of explain to you anything else that is there, especially if I walked into the room as the person thinking of hiring you and I really didn't want to hire you or I had another person in mind or what is, what is the transparency of this answer that you were given that you weren't hired because you were wearing jeans? Because we all know we have the capacity, if we had better information, to wear whatever it is that somebody wanted us to wear in front of yeah. their employees, right? But you didn't get that answer. So it's really interesting. Someone took the easy way out. And rather than being truthful um, and, and really providing an answer that might give you and them more opportunities, they just decided that that was the fastest way to make a response. And by the way, it probably had nothing to do with your genes. Or if it did, that was the icing on the cake to something else. They got I mean, a cousin just, who wants to come in and do it. They don't have the budget that they they thought they'd have for you to come and do it. All those things are some sort of uh, an admission um, that I don't have the capacities that I really should for making this choice. But a really easy way to you know to cut the mustard is, oh yeah, you're wearing the wrong thing. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> like, and, and I just wish is, I never knew. I wish <laughs> I'm going to go back to ignorance is bliss. Like, why did you even tell me that? Like, I didn't. 
you know, like I wish I had actually never known that because now that's another layer where I'm like, oh my gosh, I like, I had asked in, in all the pre-planning meetings, hey, this is what I'm going to wear. Is this okay with this audience? Like I had done what I thought were all of the right things. And then I didn't ask for this feedback. You know, it came up to me like two days later, like, let me tell you. And I was like, what? And I think the follow-up piece that also really got into me, was like in that same conversation was, hey, Jen, and I, and I know I'm sorry because it is different for men. And I was like, that does that makes me like so frustrated because now I, now I have to feel like I, okay. Like I just, I don't get to wear jeans because I'm a woman. What it's 2022. Like I don't understand. And so that's where I do think I, I did this experience and it's, I mean, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. It's a big, it's a story, right? It's a talking point, but it did stimulate a lot of follow-up conversation or like thinking of like, why don't we say that? Or why, why would I then give the follow-up? And I'm, I'm sorry, by the, by, I'm sorry for your loss, Jen, but men can do it. You just can't. Like, I don't even understand how I'm supposed to process that. <laughs> like... You did exactly what I was going to suggest that you do it, or you probably do it now. It sounds like you're doing it before. You were asking the question, uh, what's the best What's the best thing for me to have on in the group of people that I'm talking to? And you got the answer. It's too bad. And, and maybe the person who gave you the answer that it was fine to wear jeans, um, although maybe they didn't do that directly, but it's fine to be casual. Um, didn't actually defend you and say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm the one that that told her that she could do that. So don't blame her. Let's not make that the reason why that, you know, the, these things happen. And in a world that's concentrating on being ethical, um, you know, trustworthiness is, 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 the, is the foundation of all human virtues. I'll actually ask people in some of my talks, what do you think the greatest human virtue is? And of course, often the answer is love. And that does distinguish us from the other animals on the planet uh, for the depth that we can feel and for the four legs of the stool, spiritual, intellectual, emotional, and physical that we bring into love. Um, but if you think about it, uh, love itself doesn't work unless your partner is trustworthy, unless your partner is truthful. Now, you can have a certain version of love if you're not being truthful in that relationship, sure. but it's not true love. And so what undergirds true love, and in fact, what undergirds all of our virtues is truthfulness, is trustworthiness, right? So that's the other, I think, uh, one of the other messages in the book is how can we concentrate on this idea? The truth is actually going to get us a lot farther than some of the other stuff that we put in the way from our own ego or whatever the filters are going to be with the way that we're making choices. How much, excuse me, better a world we'd have if we were concentrating this idea of providing a trust and truthfulness, which by the way, isn't always transparency. I'll go back to that idea of someone stepping out of the, my partner stepping out of the changing room. I would get in trouble for this one. My partner stepping out of the changing room. I go, Oh God, that's the ugliest color you've ever had on because there are emotions attached to this relationship too. It isn't just simply intellectual. Um, uh, you know, there are uh, emotions attached to the consequences that I have to think about. So coding the language coding, not C-O-A-T, C-O-D, C-O-D-I-N-G. Coding the language might be a good thing to do because I've got to think about that as emotional consequences. But if I take this example and I'm going to go into the same situation in the future with my partner, it might be great to have a conversation ahead of time. If you ask me, how do I look? What kind of an answer are you looking from me? I mean, what, what is it that you're trying to get out of the, the uh, answer of that, right? My permission, uh, my attitude. Uh, oh, you're you're looking sexy in that thing. What what is it that you're asking? When you ask, <laughs> you know, when you ask, how does this look? Because that'll inform the kind of answer that I've got. Um, and I'm going to guess that rarely is someone saying, "Well, I want a specific 100% understanding of whether you think that fashion fits me in such a way." Right? I think there are probably lots of layers to the to the answer that you're looking yeah. for when you say, "How does this look on me?" Right? Yes. Oh my. So at any rate, I think uh, uh, it's too bad that you didn't have an opportunity to sort of ask these people, how does this look on me when you got up, right? And by the way, after these talks, when I do this, I'll have people walk up to me and sort of jokingly say, well, how does this look on me? And I, I sort of act like, uh, uh, I don't know if you remember Hogan's Heroes in the old days, but there was a German soldier on it that used to say, I know nothing. I know nothing, right? So don't ask me how you look unless you tell me what it is you're looking for. I mean, Chris, I know that we have to wrap. So we're already over. Like this conversation has blown by and I've loved it. Um, and thank you even for going into that because it does, it's like, how can we support one another, right? Like, how can we actually do that? But I do appreciate the the case that you built for the, the need for open transparency, trust, 
setting expectations in the beginning. Hey, how do you want me to respond in this situation that we have to have this dialogue and these conversations to help create that better understanding or that foundation of our empathy to have our awareness. I mean, you've dropped you, you've had my mind rolling this entire podcast. I already know you know that. Like, they, And someone else, I hope that they've been following along on the journey. But Chris, I know that we're at our time. What would be like anything else that you feel like we didn't cover or a final point that you would want to share with the audience? Yeah, if I go through what we didn't cover, we'll be here for hours. We don't <laughs> I, I think I'm fine with that. Let's talk. Now you ask great <laughs> questions. But you know, this is very layered and it's actually an active part of our lives almost at every moment that we're actually dealing with something outside of ourselves. Um, you know, there's, there are very few ethics on a desert, deserted desert Island, right? Because uh, the, you know, the question, I've even got a cartoon in the book that talks a little bit about this, because the question is, what am I doing that has an impact on others now and in the future? I'd say for anybody who believes this mantra, there's no right way to do the wrong thing, especially in the toxic moral era that we find ourselves in. Picking up this book, reading this book, asking me questions, and there are different ways to get a hold of me or asking one another questions. I wanted to start a conversation about how we can make more consistent right choices uh, in our lives and how we can get this idea that ethics are the purview uh, of the rich and famous or the purview of the highly educated or the religious leaders. And no, it's our purview. It's really here. There's really a basic way that we can use very simple tools to make really good choices. So I'd say, yeah. Uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. There's ways to pick up my book, The Noble Edge, anywhere that's out there and get them delivered. And I'd love to hear from people either leaving a review or just asking me directly uh, via email or post office box or whatever. Um, just some questions so that we can get this dialogue going. And by the way, I so much appreciate you for actually getting this dialogue going and for having the conversation because that's really where we need to be as we're talking about making a change in the world, an ethical change, one decision at a time. Oh my gosh. I have loved this conversation. Thank you so much for just sharing your time and passion and expertise and research with the Leadership Habit audience. Noble Edge, reclaiming an ethical world, one choice at a time. Chris, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Jen. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Christopher Gilbert. And hey, if you want to get in touch with him, you can get a copy of his best-selling book by heading to nobleedgeconsulting.com, or you can get it from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indigo, and many other book providers. And remember that there's no right way to do the wrong thing. Live the truth every day and it will change your life. Those were words from Dr. Gilbert. And so don't forget to connect with them for your speaking needs. And of course, if you have leadership needs, if you want to develop your leaders to give them the tools that they need to succeed today in this challenging work environment, head on over to crestcom.com. We would love to help you develop your leaders so they can be more confident and they can build more connected teams and cultures where people actually want to work. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Until next time.